Psalm 45. And for this morning, we'll read the first nine verses. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon thy lips. Therefore God has blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword on thy thigh, O mighty one, in thy splendor and in thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let thy hand, let thy right hand teach thee awesome things. Thine arrows are sharp, the peoples fall under thee. Thine arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is a scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of joy above thy fellows. All thy garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloe and cassia. Out of the ivory palaces stringed instruments have made thee glad. King's daughters are among thy noble ladies. At thy right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. What we have here is a song, a song of love. In fact, the little subscript, I didn't read it, but uh, that's the last thing it says about this. This is a song of love. And it's addressed to the king celebrating his marriage. Uh, you might say it's a wedding hymn sung at a royal wedding. It's a lovely song, lovingly written about love. What earthly Jewish king this was written for, we really don't know, perhaps David or Solomon. What we do know is that its real meaning refers to the true king of Israel, the king of kings, the king of creation. We know this because it's quoted in the New Testament as referring to Christ. These verses that I read, verses 6 and 7, are quoted in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. You can look that up later on. We won't get that far this morning as far as dealing with those verses, but it's obviously referring to Christ, so we know that uh, it's proper to use this psalm in in that way. Uh, But I do want you to keep that in mind. It's important to realize from the beginning that what we're dealing with here is a messianic psalm, actually a psalm that gives a prophetic picture of Christ and his bride, the church. So that's what we're looking at this morning. A simple outline of the psalm would be this. Verse 1 is the introduction, and then we have an address to the king, which is verses 2 through 9, then the address to the bride, which is 10 through 14, and then the concluding verses, 16 and 17. Now, if you're a person that likes alliteration, uh, you could do it this way. Verses 1 and 2, Christ's beauty Verses 3 through 5, his battles. Verses 6 through 9, his bounties. 
and 10 through 17, his bride. Uh, that's not mine. Warren Worsby yeah, had that, but it, it does a pretty good, good outline. <clears throat> Christ's beauty, his battles, his bounties, and his bride. Just uh, a little sense of the whole psalm. Let's, let's dig in here to the part we're going to look at this morning. The first thing we would notice is that this is a song from the heart of the psalmist. Uh, my heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. Now right there you have an important lesson, I think, for all of us, that all praise to Christ must start in the heart. That's where the real focus must come from, <clears throat> is the heart. Otherwise, we might very well end up honoring him with our lips, with our heart far from him. And heartless worship is really an insult, uh, an insult, an insult to God. <clears throat> but this song is uh, from the heart, and it was from a heart that was overflowing. That's what the psalmist says. A heart stirred up with praise, bubbling over with joy and adoration. It was expressed with emotion, but also filled with content, which is what worship should be. Content with emotion. Both heart and head were involved. In other words, the psalmist was worshiping in spirit and truth. <clears throat> I like the way Spurgeon put it. He said, It is a sad thing when the heart is cold with a good matter. It is, a, it is worse when it is warm with a bad matter, but incomparably well when a warm heart and a good matter meet together. And that's what was happening here, a warm heart and a good matter. <clears throat> the psalmist had a theme, and it was a good theme. Actually, it was the best theme you could ever have, and his heart was overflowing with that theme. What better theme can there be? What better use of our tongue than to speak of the person and work of Christ? The beauty of Christ and his bride, the church, and their love for one another. What better theme could you have? So, Christ is the theme and also the one to whom this hymn or this psalm song was addressed. As a pen in the hand of a writer ready to take dictation, the psalmist is yielded to God to be used to glorify him. I think that's the picture we should have. He's just, he's just wanting God to show him how to write this, what's put down to glorify the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Verse 2 mentions three things that he praises the king for. His beauty, his glorious lips, or his gracious lips, excuse me, his, his beauty, his gracious lips, and his blessedness. So I want to consider those three areas just briefly. First of all, the king's beauty. He is lovely beyond all others, fairer than the sons of men. You see how he says that thou art fairer than the sons of men. We know from Isaiah that Christ had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. 
nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. But that's not what this psalm is talking about. This psalm is speaking of the king's inward character, his manner, and moral beauty. In this, the king, Christ, was fairer than all the sons of men. He had a beauty of soul, a radiancy of life that caused his bride to say, this is from the Song of Solomon, he is altogether lovely. If you had eyes to see, if you have eyes to see, you say, he is altogether lovely. And that's what the church has been saying down through the centuries. I want to give just a few quotes from what the church has said concerning Christ. Some of these are from hymns, some are just from writings. But the first one, majestic sweetness sits enthroned upon the Savior's brow. His head with radiant glories crowned, his lips with grace overflows. No mortal can with him compare among the sons of men. Fairer is he than all the fair that fill the heavenly train. So the songwriter expresses what the Christian feels. And this is when we sing this, this is what we're saying. He's fairer than all the fair. A Christian named Thomas Brooks said, Christ is lovely. Christ is very lovely. Christ is most lovely. Christ is always lovely. Christ is altogether lovely. He didn't want you to miss the point. This uh, German hymn that we sing so often, Fairest Lord Jesus, put it this way, Fair is the sunshine, fairer still the moonlight, and all the twinkling starry hosts. Jesus shines brighter. Jesus shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. And then Philip Schaff, church historian, uh, said this of Christ, and this is a kind of a combination of things that he wrote. He says, Christ combined childlike innocence with manly strength, all absorbing devotion to God with untiring interest in the welfare of man, tender love to the sinner with uncompromising severity against sin, commanding dignity with winning humility, fearless courage with wise caution, unyielding firmness with sweet gentleness. The actual character of of Jesus is felt to be infinitely greater than any conception or representation of it by the mind, tongue, or pen of men and angels. You can't do justice to it. We might as well attempt to empty the waters of a boundless sea into a bucket or portray the splendor of the risen sun and starry heavens with ink. All human greatness loses its brilliance and luster on closer inspection, but Christ's character grows more pure, sacred, and lovely the better we know him. The more you see of Christ, the more you see how lovely he is. He's fairer than the sons of men. So the psalmist goes on, in the, in the psalm here, to praise the king not only for his beauty, the beauty of his person, but also for the grace upon his lips. His mouth 
is full of sweetness. That's another quote from Song of Solomon. The bride saying, his mouth is full of sweetness. He spoke nothing but what he heard from the Father, and never a man spoke the way this man spoke. All that heard him marveled at the gracious words proceeding from his lips. Words of wisdom, love, purity, gentleness, holiness, justice, forgiveness, and comfort were always coming forth from him. He was that perfect man that James spoke of when James said, If any man does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Well, the only man that's ever done that is Christ himself. He is the perfect man. His words had authority and power to still a raging sea. He could say to demons, Come out, and to a dead man come forth. He spoke, and it was done. His voice was the voice of a king, yet his lips with grace overflowed. So the psalmist praised this king for his beauty and his gracious lips, and lastly in this verse, for his eternal blessedness. Therefore God has blessed thee forever. That's a theme that runs through this psalm. You see it in verse 6. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then we didn't get, we didn't read this part, but verse 17. Therefore, the peoples will give thee thanks forever and ever. There's an eternal blessedness to this king. Paul says that Christ is overall God-blessed forever. God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. He is the eternal blessed one who brings eternal blessing to those who will look to him. To have eternal blessing upon our lives, we must recognize that Christ is the one who God the Father has blessed forever. Therefore, God has blessed thee forever, it says. Another way of thinking about it is just that all blessedness in the created order is a derived blessedness, a secondary blessedness. Christ's blessedness is absolute and eternal. Anything blessed by God is blessed because of Christ. To be in him is the only way of true blessedness. To be in Christ, if you want to be blessed by God, the only way is to get with this one who is eternally blessed by God. And to be actually, if you think about what the theme of this psalm, what this psalm is about, to actually be the bride of this beautiful, gracious, blessed king is to be blessed beyond measure. There's no blessing like the blessing that a Christian has. You're the bride of this blessed king, this one who is blessed forever. Well, let's go on then. In verses 3 through 5, we see another attribute of this great king. He is the mighty one, the perfect warrior. The psalmist desires to see the king ride forth in victory and also predicts that victory. The king is petitioned to take up his sword and in his splendor and majesty to ride forth. 
See, if he does that, there's no question about the outcome of the battle if he takes up his sword and goes forth. Victory is certain. Many, many scriptures present this same truth. Let me just give a couple here. For instance, Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst a victorious warrior. A victorious warrior. And Isaiah 42.13. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. There's no question about it. If he, if he takes up his sword, if he girds on his sword and goes forth, he will prevail against his enemies. Now, I think this sword spoken of here is at least partly symbolic of the word of God. The scriptures. Sometimes in our hands, the scriptures seem ineffectual and almost seem to fall to the ground when we present them to someone. But that's not the case when the king takes up the sword. When he yields it, it is always quick and powerful. And really, this should be our prayer here. Gird on thy sword, gird thy sword on thy thigh, O mighty one, and in thy splendor and in thy majesty, and in thy majesty ride forth victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. If he draws his sword, conquest is certain. In fact, in the last book of the Bible, we see Christ making war with a sharp two-edged sword of his mouth. Revelation 1.16, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Revelation 2.16, Christ says, I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Later in 19.15, it says, and from his mouth came a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. So again, when he takes up the sword, there's no question as to the outcome. All enemies fall before the conquering Christ, this victorious warrior that we're speaking of here. So what ca- for what cause does he take up his sword? What cause does he go to battle for? Well, we're told here, three, three are mentioned there in verse 4. Truth, meekness, and righteousness. This king goes forth to make war in truth, meekness, and righteousness. Now you have to, it doesn't take much discernment to realize that this is not like most wars fought throughout the human history. They come about because of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. But this valiant warrior fights not for any kind of vain glory, but for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. He not only fights for these things, he fights with these things. The gospel of Christ is a gospel of truth which promotes meekness and righteousness. Again, most wars are not carried on in this manner or with these results. It's 
true that truth is actually often the first casualty of war. And meekness is scorned by those who think only the strong will survive. And righteousness is claimed by all sides, but practiced by few. Sadly, there's been much warfare carried on even in the name of Christ, which is an abomination to him because the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness were not the real, <clears throat> not the real motives. Lust and greed and hatred and bigotry and revenge and misplaced religious zeal are what has prompted much warfare. But what we have here is the one and only truly holy war because it was carried on by the Holy One Himself, the one who is the truth and the supreme example of meekness and righteousness. Now the wording of the last part of verse 4 is a little hard to understand where the psalmist says, Let thy right hand teach thee awesome things. Let thy right hand teach thee awesome things. Of course, Christ knows what he can do with his own power, by his own power. But the psalmist is asking the king to demonstrate in actual experience his great and fearful power, to bear his mighty arm and to demonstrate deliverance and salvation. In other words, he's saying manifest the power that your right hand is capable of. Let thy right hand teach thee awesome things. Let's go on to verse 5. 5 gives us three short clauses that show the swiftness and decisiveness of the king's battle. Thine arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under thee. Thine arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. So here I, it seems like the psalmist has shifted from asking the king to ride forth to victory to the actual scene of battle where the king is now seen with a bow and arrows. So I want to just uh, consider with you some of these arrows, consider these arrows that he goes forth with. Whose are they? Where they're, the, <clears throat> they're the king's arrows. Who made them? Well, he did. He shoots them. How are they described? They're sharp. In other words, they're well made and they're able to penetrate the enemy and get the job done. Who are they for? Well, they're for the king's enemies. Where do they strike? The heart, that most vulnerable organ. What do they do? They cause the fall of all they strike. Who are the king's enemies? Well, the king's enemies would be all who challenge his authority and rebel against him. Or, as we said before, those who are opposed to the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Those proud ones who would suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's the king's enemies. The king's wrath is directed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. When you think of this, when you think of who we're talking about here, how foolish 
to be the king's enemy. How foolish. His arrows are sharp. They always hit the mark. All his enemies will surely be defeated. That's what's being taught here. <clears throat> the peoples fall under thee. Thine arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. In one way or another, this king puts down all opposition. <clears throat> he will overcome. Let me give some examples of the arrows in Christ's quiver. quiver. There is the arrow of temporal judgments. When men or nations, men or nations turn from God, turn away from his truth, God can send sharp arrows and often does. The sharp arrows of punishment in this life, temporal punishments and judgments. That may be by means of famine or earthquake or pestilence or attacks from other nations, yet it is an arrow from the king against sin, against rebellion. Let me just read here out of Deuteronomy. gives an example of this. This is Deuteronomy 32, and just a few verses here. 23 through 25. God says, I will heap misfortune on them. I will use my arrows on them. They shall be wasted by famine and consumed by the plague and bitter destruction. And the teeth of beasts I will send upon them with the venom of crawling things of the dust. Outside the sword will bereave them and inside terror, both young man and virgin, nursing the nursing with a man of gray hair. In other words, he's saying there will be judgments against sin in this life. The history of mankind is basically the history of God's mercies and judgments. But we're talking here about his judgments being brought to bear in this life. And that was especially something to be uh, presented and brought forth in the Old, Test- you know, Old Testament times because <clears throat> men did not have a clear, as clear a revelation of the afterlife in that time period. In other words, if God was going to show his displeasure with sin, he showed it in this life uh, through temporal judgments. But in the New Testament, God's arrow of judgment is largely viewed from the standpoint of the final judgment, which comes against all obstinate sin, obstinate rebellion against Christ. Those people who have said, we will not have this man to rule over us, will find the arrows exceedingly sharp on the day of judgment, God's arrows exceedingly sharp. <clears throat> Psalm seven, twelve through 13 says, If a man does not repent, he, that is God, will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. 
So God is going to bring a judgment, a payday, as one person said, a payday someday for how we've lived in this life, how every person has lived in this life. Those who thought that they could trample underfoot the Son of God will find him to be a mighty warrior who had patiently restrained his arrows of wrath that men might come to repentance. But on that day, all opposition will be crushed. He, that is Christ, will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. So there's often the arrow of temporal judgment, and then we know for sure there will be this arrow of judgment on the last day. But that's not the only arrows. We should praise God that there's another arrow in Christ's quiver which he is still using in our day. And that's the arrow of conviction of sin. As Peter said on the day of Pentecost to the sinful Jewish people of that day, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. That's that arrow going in, you see. They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And they told him, You need to repent and believe the gospel. Trust in Christ. Brethren, what shall we do? See, that's that arrow of conviction. Has that arrow ever gone into your heart? It's a gracious thing when it does. Conviction of sin. Christ's arrow of conviction can pierce even the hardest heart. A good example of that is Saul of Tarsus. He was an enemy, a blasphemer. But God sent that arrow of conviction, and he was a changed man. Christ's enemies can become, now think of this, Christ's enemies can become part of his beautiful bride through the arrow of subduing and redeeming grace. God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. What an arrow this one is to know that there is an arrow of subduing, redeeming grace. Conviction of sin bringing us to the reality of our need of Christ. Christ died for the ungodly. But one way or the other, his conquest of every enemy is certain. That's the point of what the psalmist is saying here. If he girds on that sword, if he takes up his arrows, the job will get done. Christ conquered 2,000 years ago when he lived and died and rose again to accomplish redemption. He defeated sin there. He he defeated Satan. He defeated death. He is conquering. He conquered then. He is conquering right now, applying that redemption in the hearts of men and women all around the world. He's conquering. And he will conquer at the end of the age when his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. So this psalm brings this out. 
bring out some of the attributes of this king, uh, extolling his attributes here at the time of his marriage. That's the picture we're ha we have here. And then comes the marriage supper of the Lamb, when Christ brings about the destruction of his animals, enemies, his fi the final destruction. Then comes the marriage supper of the Lamb, the great wedding of the king and his bride, which is what much of the rest of the psalm deals with and which I hope to deal with in the future. Lord willing, we'll get to that section on what the bride uh, is like and does at this time of the wedding. So we have uh, a symbolic picture here of, of Christ and the church, a good theme. It's a very good theme. It's the best of themes. Let me just read this portion again here before we close. Thou art fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon thy lips. Therefore God has blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword on thy thigh, O mighty one, in thy splendor and thy majesty, and in thy majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let thy right hand teach thee awesome things. Such a king as is described in these verses is certainly a good theme and really uh, should make our heart overflow with praise, just like the psalmist says here. My heart overflows with a good theme, <clears throat> not just when we're here on Sunday morning, but throughout the week. You have a, the best of themes to make your heart overflow. <clears throat> so may God help us just to have that uh, attitude As we go through the days, my heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. Well, I thought we could close with this song, Majestic Sweetness Sits Enthroned.